1: Hi, this is Christina Cotarucci from Slate. The What Next team is out this week, so I'm rerunning a few of my favorite episodes. Today, you'll hear Mark Joseph Stern talk to Mary Harris about the case for court packing, a hot topic in democratic politics right now. The episode first aired in late March, and Mark convinced the heck out of me. He talks about why nine is a pretty random number of Supreme Court justices, and he says there's a decent historical precedent for adding more. Maybe he'll convince you, too. Enjoy. Can we count up just like how many people have started talking about changing how many justices are on the Supreme Court? Because the list is getting longer by the week, right?
0: It's getting longer and it's not just cranks anymore.
1: Mark Joseph Stern covers the Supreme Court for Slate.
0: We have Pete Buttigieg, the presidential candidate, Mayor Pete of South Bend. Uh, we have Kirsten Gillibrand. Kamala Harris has floated it. Those are big names. Those are not Redditors who are resistance moms freaking out.
1: You can hear it in Mark's voice. He's all in for this idea. It's called court packing, adding extra seats to the Supreme Court to make sure it is politically balanced. Right now, that means more liberal, frankly. Okay, Mark, you work in the Supreme Court. Where are we going to put these extra justices? Like, are we cleaning out a broom closet in the Supreme Court for them? Where are they going to go?
0: I have been thinking about that for so long. And I just don't know because the bench right now is perfectly calibrated for nine justices. There's three segments for three justices each. So I think you could probably squeeze the justices in and maybe expand it a little bit to get two more on. So I think an 11-justice court could be done without any architectural reforms. And then we could probably find like extra space in a storage closet for the chambers (laughs) for the junior justices. Or maybe we'd put them off site. We'd like put them in a WeWork or something, uh, you know, until they, they grow in seniority.
1: This idea sounds funny, right? Like almost impossible. What does the Constitution say here?
0: Right. So the Constitution says nothing about this. The Constitution says that there shall be one Supreme Court, but it does not say how many justices are supposed to be on the court. So throughout history, we have gone from as few as six all the way up to 10. But it has been fixed at nine for quite a long time since the later part of the 1800s. Nine is the number we've all come to know and expect and maybe love. And so I think for a Lots of Americans, even though there's no constitutional bar on expanding it past nine, it feels weird and it feels like something that we should think really carefully about doing before we jump into the waters.
1: Yeah, my favorite anecdote in this whole debate was in The Washington Post. It was Michael Bennett, the Colorado senator, and <laughs> whoever the reporter was asks him about court packing and he literally bangs his head on the table four times.
0: <laughs> Yeah, uh, because he's got that standard sort of politician response to court packing, which is, well, we don't want to politicize the courts, which doesn't really answer the question of what to do if you think the courts have politicized themselves or they've already been so politicized in one direction that they pose a legitimate threat to democracy and (laughs) self-governance.
1: One of President Trump's goals when he took office was to remake the federal judiciary. By most accounts, he is succeeding. Working hand-in-hand with the Republican Senate, the Trump administration has given lifetime appointments to 90 overwhelmingly white, male, and deeply conservative jurists. If you see this as a problem, remaking the Supreme Court might look like a solution. And today, Mark Joseph Stern is gonna make the case that court packing isn't actually all that radical.
0: That's the funny thing. It sounds radical. It sounds like the kind of thing technocrats and American liberals would hate because it goes way far out on a limb. You know, what about these other compromise proposals? But the truth is that it's definitely the simplest and definitely the most easily attainable from where we are right now.
1: I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stay with us. See terms at credit card. The people who are advocating for this idea of court packing, they are spoiling for a fight. Back in the summer, Tucker Carlson had this Harvard professor on his show to talk about the idea. And the two men took turns sneering and giggling at each other.
0: So what I'm really in favor of is returning the Supreme Court to being a sort of nonpartisan institution that is set away from the sort of fray of ideological politics. Uh, but we can't do that until we add some seats to correct the balance that uh, we've we've, had, we've lost. Really, <laughs> I love it.
1: I would love Mark Joseph Stern says you can tell how serious these court packing advocates are simply by paying attention to the language they use. They know that conservative critics are going to pounce on them for trying to fill the judicial branch with liberal judges. They don't try to get away with talking about expanding the Supreme Court or opening up the judiciary. They've embraced the idea of packing the courts. It's a way to neutralize criticism before it happens. Or maybe it's just a way to throw the
0: first punch.
1: So when you tweet,
0: pack I you the court, how is increasing the partisan Democratic representation on the court indeed nonpartisan? Well, you know, when you encounter a jewel thief, you must steal things back. Uh, Tucker, as I'm sure you know, and look, I
1: would When did you first see this idea of expanding the Supreme Court start to sort of come up in earnest?
0: I think that after Kavanaugh's confirmation, groups like Pack the court, really became prominent, a part of the conversation, no longer fringe voices. Uh, and people started to sort of recognize that we now have five extremely conservative justices on the Supreme Court for the first time in a really long time, right, since like the early 1900s. And so rather than wait for the court to in- inflict terrible damage on democracy. These so-called court reformers are trying to figure out how to fix the problem before it even really begins.
1: Well, terrible damage to the democracy is kind of in the eye of the beholder, right? Like for some people, this is a victory.
0: Yes, that is true, Uh, especially people who uh, supported the Senate blockade of Merrick Garland in 2016. Uh, You know, after Justice Scalia died, President Obama still had nearly a year left in office. And of course, Republicans led by uh, Mitch McConnell created this new rule that no Supreme Court justice can be appointed uh, within the last year of a president's term. And we should
1: remind people, like Merrick Garland was this real compromise choice in a lot of ways, right?
0: A foolish choice in a lot of ways, too, because President Obama was unable to recognize just how obdurate Republicans would be. But yeah, he was definitely a moderate compromise choice. He would not be the selection to push uh, the court into a new liberal golden age. He was a moderate and still Republicans refused to even give him a hearing. He was a peace offering, it felt like to me. Right. And so a lot of Democrats feel like not only did, did Obama get screwed over, but he got screwed over after being the most reasonable man in the room. And instead, Neil Gorsuch, a very far-right conservative, got that spot. So I think a lot of these people pushing for court reform are saying, we tried being moderate. We tried being reasonable. We tried the peace offering. None of it worked. So it's time for hardball politics.
1: So hardball, that's what court packing is. And it seems kind of like a classic authoritarian move to me when you look at it.
0: Well, authoritarianism is in the eye of the beholder, too, right? So we've, we've long had this struggle uh, in, in American democracy between the power exercised by the courts and the Supreme Court and the Democratic branches, right? Andrew Jackson famously, perhaps apocryphally, uh, said that the court has made its decision. Uh, you know Chief Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. The uh, presidency of Abraham Lincoln was in some ways defined by a refusal to comply with court orders and a sort of rejection of the Supreme Court's legal authority. Uh, Those tussles are famous, but not necessarily famous examples of American authoritarianism. I think we've come to view them, or most of us have come to view them as a kind of formative point in, in the court's development in a time when it was not as clear as it is today that the Supreme Court gets to say what the law is and the other branches are supposed to just automatically respect That.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was surprised when I looked into it how flexible the number of Supreme Court justices was over the years. Like, George Washington had six, and then Jefferson added some folks. Abraham Lincoln added one with, like, the pure motive of getting through policies he wanted in regards to slavery, right?
0: Yes, that is correct. But we don't really look back on them uh, adding seats and say, wow, you know, what a couple of authoritarians they were. How dare they uh, mess with the divinely ordained number of justices to sit on the Supreme Court? So none of this is new. We're reviving an age-old debate at a time when it feels uh, especially pertinent and topical.
1: Well, so you're painting this picture of like a flexible court with like Different presidents sort of adding and subtracting justices as they go. But then there was this moment where it seems like we cemented on the nine. And I wonder if we can talk a little bit about FDR, because he was the last president to really try to change the composition of the Supreme Court.
0: Right. So, you know, FDR came into office uh, with these New Deal reforms that dramatically expanded uh, the size of the federal government and also generally the the government's power over employers. And at that point, the Supreme Court was still in its so-called Lochner era uh, when it would strike down basically (laughs) any federal law that tried to regulate uh, working conditions and employment and anything outside of, like, direct shipment of interstate Commerce uh, and also would strike down really basic protections like minimum wage laws and maximum hour laws. And so FDR saw a lot of his early reforms either sort of clipped or struck down entirely by the Supreme Court. After he won that landslide election in 1936 and said, you know what, I'm not gonna mess with this anymore. I'm not gonna have to just listen to what these nine old men say is constitutional and unconstitutional. And so he came out with this plan, which he devised largely in secret uh, to expand the court to up to 15 members. But it was a very weird, complicated math. It was like one new member for every justice over the age of 70, and it could go down. The idea was basically to either push the old conservatives off the court or infuse the court with young blood. And there are a lot of reasons why this plan failed. I would say that one of the main reasons is that FDR never correctly articulated what was at stake. He never actually came out and said our entire democracy, the power of the people to regulate and govern themselves is at stake. Instead, he would kind of like slander the justices as being old grumpy guys who were in horse and buggies. And he would say, you know, they're too old to do their work. They're all fallen asleep. And he was very insincere about what he was doing and why. And that led to in part, this massive backlash, which accused him correctly of being super disingenuous and eventually gave Congress the thumbs up to vote this down by a very lopsided majority.
1: Huh. It's interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is that the lesson of what happened with FDR to you is that you really have to communicate better what you're trying to do and articulate it better to people.
0: Yes. And a lot of people who who study it highlight that this was probably FDR's most dictatorial move. And it wasn't just because of the substance of the proposal. It was the way that he conceived it in total secrecy. He told very, very few people and then just sort of like sprung it on the world and and presented it as a fait accompli, as though there could be no serious debate uh, and that all of his totally bogus pretextual reasons for it uh, should be taken at face value. I mean, even Brandeis, who was the most liberal justice on the court at the time, basically came out against it because he was also the oldest justice. And he said, look, FDR, I'm an old man and I'm doing my work just fine. So if you want to pack the courts, please don't malign us as lazy old dudes because we're doing our work. It's not our work pace that you dislike. It's what we're churning out.
1: The thing that stood out to me when I read about FDR and what he did with the Supreme Court was that he was trying to get the New Deal through. And we're again at this moment where we're talking about another New Deal. We're talking about ways to do big things in Washington. And what happened with FDR is when he tried to get something through that was very, very big legislation, it ran into a lot of opposition from the Supreme Court in particular in this case. And it shows how hard it is to get these kind of big pieces of legislation, make big change like this, and how the systems all along the way will fight you.
0: Yeah, because there are a gazillion veto points in American democracy. And even after you've jumped all the legislative hurdles, you still have to deal with the courts. And at this point, I think it's fair to say, given the precedent set under Obama and Trump, pretty much anything Democrats pass, if they ever get power back, is going to be blocked by a lower court. And it's going to go to the Supreme Court.
1: Well, and court packing is rarely discussed in a vacuum. Like whenever people bring up the idea of let's expand the Supreme Court right now, they're also talking about other things like let's give statehood to Puerto Rico. Let's somehow change the calculus of who has a voice in American democracy. But these ideas, when you say them out loud, I think to some people they're going to sound extreme and they're going to sound scary and you know, I read this op-ed about court packing where the person said, you know, changes to the size of the court have gone hand in hand with the most vibrant periods of our democracy. And I thought that was interesting. And I also thought <laughs> vibrant depends on your perspective. <laughs> like <laughs> what you're talking about sounds vibrant. It also sounds a little extra maybe. <laughs>
0: uh, that's a nice that's a nice way of putting it um, you know I would say that uh, in terms of the broader constitutional reforms uh, if somebody proposed uh, the Senate today uh, and it didn't already exist we would all think that they were totally crazy right because we have a basic principle of one person one vote in this country and yet the Senate converts a, a resident of Vermont's vote into a bunch more votes than a resident Of Texas. That feels wrong. You don't get to do that with the House. You can't do that with state legislatures. So the Senate is a radical and sort of radically uh, anti democratic idea in itself. So the people who are saying, let's reform the Senate and and reform the court while we're at it to make sure it sticks, they're trying to have everybody take a step back from the status quo and say, look how we got here. And is this really where we want to be? Is this the place that America should be? The only Western democracy that still has this extreme malapportionment? Uh, And if not, what are the, uh, I guess, vibrant ideas that we can engage with to try to fix the problem? Uh, And if we get too into the weeds with originalism and we have this love affair with how everything is right now or how it was in 1789, then we kind of forget that we're supposed to be growing. And when democracy stands still, it's kind of like a shark, right? It just dies. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Mark Joseph Stern, thanks for talking it
0: out. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure.
1: Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts for Slate. All right, that's the show. What Next is a daily news podcast that's hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. You can go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review there. We'll read it, we'll be psyched, and more people will find us. So thanks for doing it. Talk to you tomorrow.
0: America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose.